This is the Work Minus Podcast, where we talk about what we need to drop from how we work today and transformative ideas to help you build a better workplace. To hear all of our episodes and read articles about how you can improve your workplace, go to workminus.com. Welcome back to Work Minus. Today, our guest is Chuck Blakeman. He's the founder of the Crankset Group, and this is Work Minus Management. Hi, Chuck. How are you? I'm doing well, Neil. It's great to be with you. It's great to be with you, too. Chuck, you have a lot of themes that you talk about in your work that are very similar to what we talk about here at Work Minus. So I want you to just to introduce yourself and tell us about what you do. Sure. I'm a, uh, uh, I'm ADHD, left-handed, right-brained, uh, dyslexic, uh, barely finished high school, uh, I'm, I'm a serial entrepreneur. Built uh, 12 companies in eight different industries on four continents, and so I'm an incurable entrepreneur. So you have a problem. So I have a problem. I have a disease. Yeah. Nice. So tell us about the Crankset Group. Tell us about the kind of stuff you do and the topics you talk about. Yeah. Well, my the, the majority of our work is actually working with companies to help them build their their uh, leadership and their leadership teams and and to create organizations that organizational structures that replace the uh, the operating system that we've been working with for the last 125 years. So that's what we do the most of. And then I speak on that and write on that kind of stuff as well. I've uh, done a couple books, uh, number one business book of the year and a number 10. And uh, my third book is coming out next fall. It's called Rehumanizing the Workplace by giving everybody their brain back. <laughs> nice. You have some really good lines there, Chuck. Tell us the names of the other book titles you have. Yeah, the uh, first one is called Making Money is Killing Your Business. It's for entrepreneurs and for small business owners who uh, don't understand that uh, they should not try and make money. What they should do is build a business that makes money and figure out how to create freedom for themselves, all that kind of good stuff. And then the second book was called Why Employees Are Always a Bad Idea, No Exceptions. <clears throat> and the uh, premise behind that book was that the factory system, which I riff off on my third book, uh, the factory system sold us a bill of goods with this idea of an employee manager uh, kind of thing. Uh, and it, 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 uh, we need stakeholders instead. We need, uh, we're entering the participation age. The emerging work world is, is a place where people want to participate in building a company, but they also want to share in the rewards. They want to build it with you, not for you. So the top-down thing needs to go away. All right, we've got a lot of ground to cover today. Let's start with the industrial age, which you referred to earlier. We're going to end up talking a lot of bad stuff about that time, but let's start with the good stuff. What were some of the things that we learned that were good from the industrial age? Yeah, uh, process and uh, efficiency and measuring things. Uh, I can't tell you how often I go into companies where they're just not measuring. And I don't know how you do business. You cannot ask questions if you don't have good metrics. Uh, so numbers is the language of business and the industrial age helped us figure that out better than anybody. So process and, and, uh, developing development of innovation through watching hey, our numbers are this machine is running at 80%. How do we get it to 85? That was a great thing. And Edward Deming is a good example of someone who really uh, blossomed as a result of the industrial age. He was the father of process improvement and, uh, and, and basically revolutionized Japanese car manufacturing so that it overtook the U.S. because the U.S. would not listen to him. So he went over to Japan in the 60s, and the rest is history. All right, so that's the good stuff. Let's shift and talk about the other side. What are some of the things you like to talk about that are elements that we should have dropped a long time ago from the industrial age? Well, the biggest one we should have dropped is that uh, people are stupid and lazy. 
Uh, Frederick Winslow Taylor wrote in 1911, wrote scientific management. It's the Peter Drucker said uh, that this man, Frederick Winslow Taylor, had more impact on the 20th century than Freud, Darwin, and Marx. So maybe that gets your attention. And this guy, he he invented basically management as we know it. We call it the factory system. And his premise was, quote, the average employee is so stupid, they more resemble the ox than any other type. And, quote, the average employee is so lazy, they will only work so hard as to not get fired. Well, if people are stupid and lazy, the only solution you have is to find the very few smart and motivated ones, lord them over the stupid and lazy ones, and thus management was born. So uh, two things you need to forget about from the uh, industrial age is people are stupid and lazy and hierarchical organizational design that we inherited from slavery through serfdom through the military into the factory system. The pyramid scheme needs to go away. All right, this is huge. Now we're getting into the meat. I love it. Let's start with the title of this episode is Work Minus Management. So what are some of the core things about management that go against how we should be operating and how can companies come up with ideas to overcome that? This is a great one. This is in my third book. I've spent the last year and a half looking, asking this question. Has, has anyone ever proved that managers make people more productive? Neil, I can't, I can only find one study that even approaches the question. That has been one of the dumbest assumptions we've ever had from 200 plus, you know, plus years of factories is that people work better, better, faster, and more productively, and we make more money because there's somebody standing over them with a whip or with joy. You know, funny, you know, I mean, managers sometimes they, they lead with whips, they lead with motivation, they lead by hugging people, but everybody says managers make people more productive. I can only find one study that approached it. It was Google's oxygen study, and it was one of the worst uh, studies I've ever seen in my life with confirmation bias. They tried to get rid of managers in 2003 and figure, and, and, and did it badly, did it wrong, reeled it all back in, and then spent a few years studying why managers matter. What they came up with here, they said there are 10 behaviors that people need at work in order to be successful. By the way, one of those 10 behaviors is to not be micromanaged. I think Google overlooked this. But 10 behaviors to be uh, that people need at work and then and they and then they leapt to therefore managers matter well this is a form versus function discussion there's 10 functions 10 behaviors and we just assume there's only one way people can get those so uh, th this whole concept that people are stupid and lazy and that managers make them more productive uh, we just you know it's just it's bizarre all right, so you said Google did it badly. So there's obviously a right and a wrong way to adopt this new approach. So what do you mean by that? Yeah, in my new book, I talk about this. There's three things. There's all three influences on how we make decisions. And I don't need to give you all three. The third one is the human need for certainty. And it's the one that rules over the others. Well, I'll give them to you, complexity and change. But we make most of our decisions in business based on how every day should look the same. And yeah, the pain I know is better than the pain I've yet to experience. So let's just keep going. And we have this pyramid scheme that's been in place for 175 years. Every, uh, every uh, study you should see on this say this thing doesn't work. And then they throw more, a little more lipstick on the pig because they don't know what to do to fix it. Google... Did uh, Google understood that this was a bad idea, and what they did was, you know, they didn't bother to look at this closely, and they removed managers. They announced 
the end of managers. The human need of certainty is recoiling under that uh, under that uh, statement. Okay, so you're removing the one thing I understand. What are you putting in its place? Oh well, we're not. You know, that'll just evolve. It's organic. You know, we'll just make it up. Well, three months later, they reeled it all back in because people were panicking and had nothing to replace it with. You you don't remove the way you do it wrong. The way you'd make any change is you remove the thing people are comfortable with, even if they don't like it. And you give them nothing in replace. The, uh, so the the process here should be additive. Let's add things that make managers irrelevant. And over three, six, 12 months, people are going to look around and say, why do I need that guy anymore? And the manager is going to say the same thing. Why do I need to be doing this to those people? There's a better place for me in this organization. So add, don't subtract. All right, let's get into what you can add to make management irrelevant. You mentioned certainty. What are some things that an organization can do to build in certainty aside from just appointing a bunch of managers? So the first thing you need to add is the idea that, that uh, we are mission-centered, we are not department-centered. We're, we're no longer working for the department or the boss in the department. There is no department, there is no boss, there's a function. I don't work for the marketing department. I work for the in, we work a, as a team in the marketing function, and the only reason we exist is to serve the mission. So everybody should be calling the, on that, us on that on a regular basis. In the top-down pyramid scheme, you, you create your department, your technology, your marketing or whatever, and your job is to make it as big as you can with as much money as you can because that's how you make more money. So one of the things you can do is, is reverse that whole thing and say, okay, we're not going to do this with one individual who's a, a manager. We're going to do this with a team of technology people or a team of marketing people. And your job is to make the marketing department as small as possible and as efficient as possible in, in pursuit of, of, of the mission statement. And the better you are at that, the more money you'll make. That would be number one. Number two would be uh, what we call distributed decision making. This is the core practice of a rehumanized workplace. Neil, what makes us adult? There's only one thing. I've studied it. One thing makes us adult. There's things that make us human. But the one thing that makes us adult versus a child is this, the ability to make decisions. And... Yeah, and I can go to bed when I can eat the ice cream when I want to. But you, it's so it's it's also the privilege and the responsibility to do both, <clears throat> and we don't like that. Yeah, you know, we don't want the responsibility. But that's what makes us adult is the ability to make decisions. What's the one thing people are not allowed to do at work? Make decisions. As soon as you cross the threshold, somehow you're a seven-year-old again. I'm going to tell you exactly what time to show up, what time to leave, what time recess is. We call it uh, break. What time lunch is, all of that stuff, and exactly what to do all day long. I'm going to tell you that's what managers do. And we turn people back into seven-year-olds. And then we wonder why month after month after month for the last 25 years, Google does or, or Gallup does a survey and finds out that engagement is at 30%. Okay, so let's put some nuts and bolts around this. I mean, let's say you are in a management position and you want people to work for the mission, not just the department. You want to turn over a lot of decision-making to others. Can you just do that overnight? Is that something where I can just say, hey, you know, from now on, we're we're going to start making all our own decisions? That would be subtractive. Hey, uh, you guys are now all stakeholder adults. You're not employees, you're stakeholders. You're all adults and you're all uh, part of a, a distributed decision-making. We call them DDM teams. I'll be on the golf course. But that's not the way this works. Uh, I'll give you a live example. And by the way, I want to say this up front. I love managers. I hate management. 
And I feel sorry for anybody who's put in a position where they have to be called and work like a manager. It is a godlike position that no one has the, no one person could possibly do. Those 10 behaviors that Google outlined, I don't know anybody who could do more than five or six of them. Maybe a, a superhuman hero here or there could do seven. And then we hate managers because they can't do the other three. They are set up to fail on a regular basis. Uh, everything is on their shoulders. So when to, to fix this, let's go to the manager and let's say, okay, what are the five out of the 10 things you're really good at? Let's take those to the team and see if the team agrees. They're going to because they're really good at them. Yeah, you serve us really well with these five things. Okay, how about if you rejoin the team as one of many and you keep those five things? Let's take the other five and let's put them on a board and let's ask the team, which one of you would be good at number one? Which one is really – well, I think Bob would be – Bob, you're a really good trainer, and everybody agrees Bob's a really good trainer. Okay, Bob, you're in charge of training. Okay, Fred, uh, Fred, you're really good at reports. Why don't you do the report stuff? And Sally, you're re really good at mentoring people and that kind of stuff. Why don't you, you know, try and help us keep the peace? And, you know, here's all these 10 things, and we're going to we're gonna find – in a team of three people, you will find these 10 things. In a team of one manager or in a manager, you will never find all of them. So that's the simple but not easy way to redistribute this. And most managers will be thrilled to do that because now they get to do what they're really good at and other people get to do things they're really good at. And now the managers go back into doing some production as well as leadership. Nobody's managing. We're all leading. That's that's part of the, the tectonic shift here is that there's no managers. There's a lot of leaders. Everybody becomes a leader. Uh, uh, there's lots of stories about that. I, I can talk about talk to you about companies with 75,000 people and not a single manager in the whole place and 75,000 leaders. Sure. Well, go ahead and tell us one of those stories about what it looks like in real life. That's Hire Corporation. Hire, H-A-I-E-R. They're Chinese. In a, in a communist country, is the most capital and one of the more, most capital uh, oriented companies in the world. In the world, every one of those people, all seventy five thousand, are capitalists. And the way they do it is they have four thousand distributed decision making teams of ten to fifteen people each that are entirely locally responsible for everything, including their budget, including their salaries, including their, their revenue. And I'm talking accounting, marketing, technology, all these teams that are internally we usually can't fire. We have to use them even though, you know, we hate our technology team. We wish we, you're stuck with them, not at hire. At hire, it's a team of 15 people in this local situation that does technology for, you know, eight or 10 or 15 other teams. And if you don't like them, if they're not serving you, if their price is too high, you can go out in the common market and buy your technology somewhere else and put them out of business. Uh, that's a great example of a uh, distributed decision-making team model. They make 10% of all the washing machines, refrigerators, and stoves in the world. Uh, W.L. Gore, people know that one. W.L. Gore is, uh, you know, they make Gore-Tex. And Bill and Vivian Gore started this one in their basement in 1958 and have never had managers. 10,000 people, not a single manager in the whole place, all DDM teams. And uh, and they, they perform at the, the top of their industry. GE Aviation, uh, Tom Peters, who wrote the book In Search of Excellence, uh, tweeted me about a year and a half ago about this whole idea of DDM teams. And he said, hey, if there's ever an airplane made by DDM teams, make sure it's, and with no managers, make sure it's labeled, I'm not getting on it. So I just said, well, Tom, uh, GE Aviation makes like 25% of all the airplane engines in the world. They have eight factories, no managers, any of those factories. You're going to have to take the bus from now on. 
<laughs> nice. All right, well, let's get over to the other topic we talked about of rehumanizing the workforce. You mentioned before that there was a time when humans were really just looked at as robots. Workers were just as good as an oxen almost. Now we're in an age where not just manually, you know, factories have replaced everything with robots. Now even in knowledge work, we're looking at the same thing. What does the future of work look like when it comes to how can we blend in human talent, robot talent, and, and what's the right perspective to have? Yeah, it's a great. The future of work looks like 1800 or 1750. Before factories, I got up in the morning and I decided I want to be a shoemaker. And I went and apprenticed for four or five or six years. And I learned everything I could about making shoes. And then I went out and started my own shop. And I spent the rest of my life learning everything I could about making shoes, the metallurgy, the leather, the tanning, the stitching, the forms, the molding, the customers, the marketing, the everything. And, uh, and, and I had a brain. <clears throat> and then you stuck me in a factory and you had me put a nail in the left boot. That is dehumanizing. And, and, and so it's, the future of works look, looks back at, at what we did before the factories. How did we rehum? How did we, how did people feel like adults then? They made decisions. So we have to rehumanize the workplace by giving everybody their brain back and allowing and requiring localized decision-making because input equals ownership. We wonder why people aren't engaged. It's because some manager walks out of a Walnut office with a brilliant process, imposes that process on the 10 people, walks back into their office. Nobody owns it. So we're not engaged. In the big problem here, Neil, is that in the factories, <clears throat> people uh, were needed to run the machines, and pretty quickly they became extensions of the machines. It was just easy. Machines need to be managed. They are stupid and lazy. And, and uh, people eventually very quickly became extensions of machines were thought of as just like the machines. And so we need to separate the people and the machines again. The same thing with, uh, with robots going forward. Here's the 125 years worth of data. <clears throat> if you're nice to people and you treat them like adults, you make more money. And this is true whether you have robots, you still need people, you need fewer people. But if you're nice to the people, if two factories have the same number of robots and the same number of people, and one factory allows and requires localized, localized decision-making and the other one doesn't, the one that has DDM teams will make more money. So that is a consistent thing throughout history. Uh, for thousands of years, 80 to 90% of all free people owned their own business and made decisions. Now it's 15% and everybody looks at them like they're weird. Now, earlier you talked about a list of 10 things that managers need to do to be effective and that no human could do all those things. Are there things on that list that we could give over to a computer or software that could do it better than a human could ever do it? Absolutely. There's a lot of AI involved in this. And one of the things that's allowing and, re and helping larger companies and smaller ones get to where they don't have managers uh, is, is technology. There are the, the ability to measure. One of the things managers have done uh, well and badly, you know, it's one of their responsibilities is to measure uh, and report. And uh, man, AI can do that incredibly well. Uh, and just standard reporting mechanisms can do that incredibly well, have for a number of years. But a lot of the functions of, of uh, management will be automated by the DDM teams themselves. They will plug the data into their software and say, here's the result we want. Here's the process we're going to use. Here's the metrics that prove the process is working. Let's plug that into the software, and the software is going to, going to guide us and tell us if we are um, creating the right result with the right metrics, with the right process. And, uh, and we can also plug into the software what kind of rewards we get as a result of it, uh, what kind of incentives, what our 
base pay should be. There's a factory out there in Brazil that does not pay people a base salary. They pay them per washing machine uh, uh, created, and they do them in pods. They don't do them in assembly lines. All of that can be artificially, or not, not, not AI even. It could be just um, uh, done with a uh, measured with a piece of software, and fifty percent of management goes away. So, Chuck, in all of your experience, have you ever had a situation where someone gave you a, a convincing or a legitimate argument that we really do need to keep management in place? No, I, they're all emotional, just like Tom Peters. Every single time I get an emotional argument. It's about ego, power. We've always done it this way. It's scary to do it the other way. Things will go down before they go up, which is not true. It's a fad, uh, which is not true. Uh, W.O. Gorsman around 65 years. Uh, every argument people have given me, there's about 12 myths of DDM teams and, and the participation age, and they're all just myths, and they're all based on emotion, just like Tom Peters. He actually spent a year and a half throwing emotion at me. This is a man who's incredibly metrics-driven, and I kept, you know, I kept giving him data. I, you know, hey, uh, uh, don't don't make uh, machines this or don't make airplanes this way. And I gave him data. Here's eight factories. Every time he came back to me emotionally, he came back to him with fact with a, a fact. He finally blocked me a year and a half later because he, you know sometimes when you don't have any data, you just want to run away. Uh, there's a big investment. There's a huge ongoing emotional investment in the top-down hierarchy. People actually think it works better for them. Uh, anybody, uh, that's another thing they say is, hey, I'm okay, maybe the people at the bottom are losing, but I'm winning, so I'm not going to mess with this thing. Nope. I can show you any company in your category who is doing it differently. If you are a top-down pyramid scheme guy and you want to become a flatter structure and have DDM teams, you will make more money and you will have more freedom and you will enjoy your life more. So you don't lose by doing this. Is DDM something you can just try a little bit and get your toes wet or is it something where you really need to be all in for it? Yeah, there's no stuff in your, there's no putting your toes in this. Ricardo Semler wrote a book called Maverick in the late in the mid 90s and then they he got invited to to teach at Harvard and he was trying to help people with this stuff. And he had a he, he called them alien Wednesdays. He had people coming through his factories in Brazil showing them how to do this. And what he realized was people were picking off the things that they felt safe would fit into their pyramid scheme and leaving behind the things that they didn't think would, you know, that might cause disruption to the, the human need of certainty that they already had. And it just doesn't work. This is an all in thing. Either people are smart and motivated or. They are stupid and lazy. Douglas McGregor, this is not new stuff. Neil, Douglas McGregor wrote a book in 1960 called The Human Side of Enterprise, postulating theory X, theory Y. People are stupid and lazy. People are smart and motivated. And every factory he looked at or every uh, uh, company he looked at where they believed one of those two things, the, it, it, it came true. We make people stupid and lazy or we make them smart and motivated. And it is an on-off switch. Yeah. I guess the way to say it quickly, very quickly, is you either dehumanize your workplace by giving, by having decisions made locally, or you don't. You can't, you can't be a hypocrite and say you're a human and then, and then make decisions for me. You can't do it. Hmm. Well, Chuck, obviously you have a lot of great thoughts to share. Where can people go to keep track of you and get one of your well-titled books? ChuckBlakeman.com would be a great place for them to find everything we do, ChuckBlakeman.com. Uh, they can uh, email me at Chuck at CrankSetGroup.com, uh, and they can find my books on Amazon, uh, audiovisual or audio uh, long form and every form available. So uh, just check us out at ChuckBlakeman.com. All right. Well, thanks so much for being on the show and sharing your insights. It's awesome. Thanks so much, Neil. 
This has been the Work Minus Podcast. If you like what we're doing, go to workminus.com where you can see the show notes and a full transcript for every episode. You can also sign up for our newsletter where you'll get the latest progressive ideas about how you can build a better workplace. 